0: Michael Davis on the show of Heart Davis Heart. Hello, sir. How are you? I'm great, thanks. Nice to see you. Good to be here. So you've had a long career as an
1: auctioneer in the wine market. How did
0: that get started?
1: Uh, it, was, it reads like a Hollywood B-movie. Uh, it was called into action for the very first Napa Valley Wine Auction while I was working at Christie's in New York. And was taking the place of one of my superiors. Had no exposure to, to wine outside of a friend that was a chef at the, at the time.
0: How did you get to Christie's?
1: It was kind of an accidental process. I was looking for a job in New York. I was actually, with the background I was in photography. So um, the job I was seeking had been given to someone's nephew, and I had an hour to spare. So I, the, the recruiter said, well, I've got something here from Christie's. I had the time to spare. I, there was no pressure. I didn't care what I said or how I said it. Um, so it was a very relaxed interview. Uh, probably the most relaxed I've ever had in my life, because I wasn't taking it seriously. And within half an hour, I was offered a job. And accepted him, uh, And my thought was, hey, you know, I'm studying photography. Maybe this is the path I should take. And it uh, ended up being a great
0: adventure. Photography sells for money now. And right, right. You right. were like, hey, and this
1: is the 80s. The light bulb went off, yeah. So uh, I, my first position was in the, in the accounting division. And I would literally call people and, and get their money for a jewelry purchase or a Monet painting. And uh, that lasted luckily about 10 days before I got bored and they sensed it. You had to remind people
0: hey, remember that big thing you got in your living room? <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah. Yeah. We, we need, need you to pay people. that. Exactly. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but it was all, it was a great experience all the way around to learn a little bit about a lot of different fields. And you were based in New York. Right. Right. And Michael Broadbent was based in London. He was based in London. So, um, and I'd never met him, but we ended up at the Napa Valley wine auction together and I was sort of thrown into the pit to help. And spent the weekend with Michael Broadbent and Bob Mandavi and all these luminaries of the Napa Valley wine industry at that time.
0: And this was the first Napa Valley, the wine, very actually.
1: first one. And it was a, it was a test run, all the way through.
0: And it was kind of the brainchild of Bob Mandavi.
1: Yes, and and Broadbent was very involved with the planning as well. But uh, it was you know it was a groundbreaking event. And uh, I worked. I think it was a, probably an eighteen-hour day. And then end of the day, around the table of a, a serious wine collector in Napa Valley. And they were pouring wines right and left. And I was a little late because I had so much to do. But they were all anxious to hear my comments on the wines. And I think some of them thought I was a, a wine scholar. Sure. I, I had no exposure to wine. This guy's this with
0: Michael. He knows yeah, what's yeah, up. Yeah,
1: exactly. Exactly. It's Michael's pop, so he knows what he's talking about. But when I got back to New York, I I picked up a, a pocket guide to, to wine tasting. And there was a whole chapter devoted to what not to say. So I... Went down the list, it's like, mm, yeah, I said that. I <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, said that too. Um, so essentially I made an utter fool of myself, I'm sure. But it was a great exposure.
0: Sounds like one of those Cosmo uh, quizzes.
1: It, it sort of know? was, it sort of was. But the, that sort of set the dynamite and it led to my moving to Chicago later on to, to start up the wine auctions for Christie's.
0: But I mean, Michael Broadbent, what was the show like?
1: It was amazing. I mean, he he is so, such a magnetic, knowledgeable magnetic Personable, charming, funny, engaging fellow, and always has a story to tell, and is big on presentation. You know the the seersucker coat and the hat, and the um, no pipe, but only because he doesn't smoke.
0: Well, he's on record, I think, as being asked by Christie's to play up the British thing. Oh, early in his career,
1: absolutely, absolutely. It, that was pretty obvious, and the Americans ate it up, and that was a big a big key to the success of the their first auctions. I think that people wanted to come and listen to him.
0: Because he was the first auctioneer in America, because the Hublin auctions were under him, right, right. In the 60s, and those were there 70. was
1: those were more of a Hublin event, but the Christie's auctions were, at that time, they were held at the Drake Hotel, and a great room right in at, Chicago, right here in Chicago,
0: because that's where
1: the laws allowed you to have wine auctions. Right, right. The very first one was actually held at Marshall Fields in the um, the Walnut Room of Marshall Fields. Uh, so we used their license, and then ultimately developed her own process of doing it. So the audience was composed of, it was 99.5% men. Most of them were over 50, you know, tweed jackets, cigar in the pocket, photographs of the grandkids. And they were bidding on just, as Michael would say, claret and vintage port. That was really about the only thing that the auctions contained. And there would be 240, 50 lots. And the, the grand toll at tally at the end of the day might be 100,000. Well, that was a, pretty it was, high, actually. But right? it, for that time, it was. But it was a major, major production, and uh, all of it was, you know, surrounding Michael Broadbent, and because uh, he would start every every offering with a story about the wine and when he had it, and the last time I had this, it was with the Queen Mother, and and people loved that. It was a great show.
0: But it was him and Jackie Quillen. Jackie Quillen,
1: yeah. Yep.
0: And they kind of reached out to you and they said, hey, why don't you come out and help us with this thing in Chicago? Right,
1: right. And Jackie, I worked very closely with Jackie. So brilliant, funny. We would, we would laugh until we cried at their times so She was great. Um, she's still in D.C., but she was based temporarily in, in New York for this, for this particular position. But she really launched it. And um, it was we worked very closely together. Jackie did not move to, to Chicago. She stayed in New York. And we sort of did things by remote control for a while
0: because there was an idea that there was collectors and money in America and no auctions to really rate,
1: right? right. Tap and into based that. on the success of the Hugh sales, I mean, Christie's knew there was a market for, for what they were what was going on for collectible wines.
0: But it sounds like they kind of sent you out to Chicago and cut you loose. Like, you know, they they kept you under the umbrella brand name of Christie's, but they kind of let you Yeah, a take in a good way. In a good way.
1: Had a lot of independence and worked like a dog. I was sort of a one to two person job, you know, dog and pony show for the longest time. Um, probably four auctions a year, but uh, it, it really set the the map for wine auctions in the country.
0: This was before it was legal in New York, right? Right. And you had also explored Los Angeles at some point.
1: Uh, LA opened up in the probably in the early early eighties, I would say. I'm just guessing there, but uh, Butterfield started holding auctions. And we, soon after that, started holding sales in Los Angeles, which were also very successful. Very well attended. A lot of Hollywood glitz. A lot, it was a much more glamorous you know, process than it was in Chicago. And uh, a lot of the Hollywood elite were involved. And big dinners surrounding the it, There was a lot of pomp and circumstance. A lot of excitement that surrounded those events.
0: But back in Chicago, 93 comes around. Christie's decides to roll up shop. And you cut loose onto your own
1: name. Right, right at first it was it was it was devastating at first cuz it had been in my life for such a long time but then i realized what a great opportunity it was so we started up things again in pretty short order and it was a we it was a great success from the get go
0: that's based on basically probably the fact that you already had an auction calendar sort of set up and a lot of contacts in the region
1: right right and i was working i was working out of my apartment downtown at that time and we ran an ad in the wine spectator you know Advertising the sale and you know giving piece, people a process to order a catalog and get involved. And I remember the fax machine going off in my apartment in the middle of the night, and uh, that I jumped out of bed, you know, and it was a catalog order from Tokyo. But that was that's how it all started: a dining room table, a fax machine, and in Chicago.
0: Has a lot of your career been sort of explaining to a mostly American audience what a wine auction is? Yeah, I mean, there are a lot. There were a lot
1: of misconceptions. A lot of misconceptions about what the industry was about and how it worked. People were afraid they would they would come and they would sneeze or scratch their nose and end up with a case of wine in their lap. But so there's a lot of edu- there was quite a bit of education involved. People were reluctant to get involved with the auctions. They would sit in, in the back of the room and watch you know for a few hours, and then the next time they'd come and they'd bridge it for a paddle. So um, no, there was a lot. Of, it was a foreign. People weren't accustomed to it. Unless they'd been spent time in London or at the Hubline cells, but uh, the whole process was new to people.
0: But it sounds like you made some strong contacts in Chicago in pretty short order.
1: Oh, absolutely! I mean, Chicago is a—it's—it's it's always been a, a, an amazing wine town. And um, why was, do you think that is? Well, it's there's a Chicago's a seat of power, and when there's power, there's money, and when there's money, they can they can afford great wines. So. I, a lot of it just centered on that, and it was also a central location. People could fly in from new york or l a and easily you know be here for a weekend for an auction. Did so, you find that the tastes in Chicago were different than New york or l a not really I mean it was really it was a matter of what was we we tried to call what we thought would be popular you know from particular private sellers to put in and um so yeah no, there was no real distinction between the two at that time.
0: And I imagine that you've been in the game long enough that you're now, probably for some time, taking consignments from people that you originally sold to.
1: Yes. And that's been an amazing process. In fact, just yesterday I got a call from someone that I'd, I hadn't heard from for literally 20 years. And uh, he's been out of the market, he's not drinking wine, and uh, he's going through some life changes, and now he's selling. So that's that's been a remarkable turn of events for our industry because 30 years ago we were selling primarily to Americans and now, you know, the Chinese are involved and Brazilians. It, it's truly the, the global, it's a truly global market now. But, and the American people who stocked up on wines in the 70s and 80s are, are now selling and making huge profits. For a huge returns on that. Right, right. hundred times returns sometimes. A- absolutely, absolutely. They get giddy. I mean, the gentleman I spoke to yesterday, he, he quoted a couple of wines, and I quoted prices for him, and he had been following the market for probably 10 years. And he thought I was joking. So, uh, he was he was truly giddy. And uh, so, I, <laughs> I'm sure I'll hear back from him very soon.
0: You're Michael Davis Co., and then Sotheby's purchases that.
1: Right, right. And uh, Paul Hart was with, was involved with Davis. And, it was Davidson Company, was a big part of Davidson Company. He and I forged on with with Davis and & Company, and then joined, we both joined Sotheby's at the same, same time.
0: What was the culture like from Sotheby's to Christie?
1: It was very similar, actually. So we, we felt it was a pretty comfortable environment for us to be back in, because we were familiar with it. Of course, we, being in New York, it was, there was a, certainly a different energy. The people that came to the pre-auction events and the dinners, where it was a different crowd. They wore their power on their sleeves a bit more. Very New
0: York to do that. Exactly,
1: exactly. But, uh, no, it was a very similar experience. And what was Serena Sutcliffe like? Oh, she's terrific. Terrific. Very bright, great sense of humor. Certainly knows her wine.
0: What do you think you took from some of the other auctioneers that were in the field before you in terms of your personal style as an auctioneer?
1: Oh, it's hard to say. I'm sure I've taken a little bit of, from everyone. And it's a, it's a tiny part of my job, but it's a, it's a tremendous, exciting, fun, and at times exhausting part of what I do. But to, to be up there and to see the people's faces and see the, the activity in the room, it's, it's, a, it's definitely a high to, to get that energy from, from people who are so excited about great wines.
0: What do you think the keys to being a great auctioneer are?
1: I think it just, you just have to be attentive to what's going on in the room. You have to sort of know the people in the room, what they might be bidding on or what they might be interested in. But, of course, 90% of the activity is now uh, over the Internet, on the telephones. Uh, So you're, you're always, you have to just remain alert and be, be willing to, you you have to be, you have to think on your feet and uh, be nimble with, uh, with your calling.
0: One of the companies that really did a lot of work in terms of live auction sales online was Hart Davis Hart. Right. So contract expires for you and Mr. Hart at Sotheby's and you decide to join with another Hart and launch your new program. And how did that all come together?
1: Well, Paul and I knew that we, we wanted to continue in the business. It had been our lives for a long time, and we enjoyed it. We, we had lots of contacts. Uh, and it just felt right for us to move on and, and continue what we were doing in Chicago. So I had known John. I knew John Hart before I even moved to Chicago. And uh, we had a great friendship. He had his ongoing business and, and, and certainly a lot, close ties with a lot of prominent collectors in the country. So we scheduled lunch with John and and uh, we very quickly agreed that we would join forces and and uh, amp up his retail business, and also have auctions at the same time.
0: And Paul and John are not related. Even, no relation. They go the, the same, same way,
1: but no relation. And seconds. in the beginning, with every press release, we would we would say, you know, paren, no relation, close peren. and then we stopped. But people were shocked. They just assumed it was father son, but no relation whatsoever.
0: And he he, uh, had a retail side that you integrated into the auction side. Right,
1: right. And John had been in the business for years and years, initially with Chicago Wine Company, and uh, he was one of the original partners, but he split off and started his own company at at one point, Uh, but was still very involved with rare wines with with collectors all around the world. And when did it become apparent that
0: this internet thing was really going to make a change in the auction world?
1: When the Chinese bidders became active, that's when we really recognized the, 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 the real you know, potential there. It was explosive. And uh, the Chinese, they were so focused on the auctions and they were spending so much money all at the high end. I mean, for the, for the longest time, they were focused on Lafitte. So Lafitte achieved prices that it may never achieve again. <laughs> it was fueled almost exclusively by the Chinese market
0: but th- that's like two thousand and eleven right right,
1: right, but I mean that the Chinese have become much more sophisticated they, they're they've been exposed to to the rare wine market now and to, and to great wines, so that has calmed down. it's still a huge part of our business, but they're they're exploring other types of wines they're they're not focused just on the feet but they're they're building huge sellers with some diversity, so it's filtered into burgundys, even California wines, and certainly Bordeaux do you think that
0: Part of their quick evolution from you know, it's only 2014 had to do with
1: outside consultants from other countries or Everyone of the business wanted to be in, in China. Everyone wanted to set up shop. Everyone wanted to be to infiltrate the Chinese market uh, because they realized that there was strong n- not just strong interest but you know deep pockets real money. Deep pockets yeah. And uh, there was there was a complete revolution in China in every possible way economically and socially. So it was it sort of was part of the whole evolvement of China, really, that people decided, you know, hey, I, I want a I want a you know, a sports car, I want to live in this beautiful apartment and I want a wine cellar. So it was it was a natural evolvement. And it it's really transformed the business in a big way.
0: But Hart Davis Hart seems to have made a conscious decision. I mean, you have a representative in Asia, but in general you didn't make the big push into Hong Kong that some of the competitors based in New York did?
1: Paul Hart and I learned from experience that it's, if you don't centralize your operations, you beg for, for issues. So we realized that the, the most powerful way for us to operate would be to have, and literally we're, our offices are on top of the wines. If someone calls and has a question about a bottle, we can put them on hold and run down a few flights of stairs and, and pick up the phone again. That's a huge advantage for us. We didn't want to have different venues it just it's it's expensive it's inefficient and it's naive to think that if, if someone in China wanted to bid that they couldn't pick up the not pick up the phone or engage with us online did you think that that was
0: a handicap for for Christie's having multiple offices
1: no I th- I think it helped it helped everyone for for some people to be there because they helped publicize the process it helped people become aware of auctions and how easy it is to participate but we quickly found that the Chinese, they came to us. And um, in fact, we have an auction this weekend and we have several people coming in from from Asia just for the sale.
0: And it seems like the Brazil market has also matured quite quickly.
1: Yeah, there's always been a strong, very, very strong participation for Brazil. And that's been amplified several times over in the past few years.
0: And why do you think that is?
1: Well, there's, again, there's a lot of wealth in that country. And one of our... One of our longtime employees, Alan Frischman, who is a, a one of our senior specialists, the senior specialist, married a Brazilian woman, speaks speaks Brazilian. He spends a lot of time in the area, and um, no, that's been a huge help for us.
0: Because it's been not a small part of your sales.
1: No, not at all, not at all. I mean, we'll, we will almost always have at least a couple of Brazilians in the in the room, and probably a dozen or so bidding online during every auction.
0: You're an auctioneer. Online happens. What does that mean for how you're, you style your presentation in the room?
1: It has changed things. We have to, we've changed our cadence. We've changed the, our entire approach to how we sell you know, from the podium to accommodate the people online. And um, it's given the we hold the sales at, at true. So we have to be out of there at a certain time because they have you know, people coming in to, to dine. So um, we have to really manage our time carefully. And a lot of that has to do with how we how we budget our time to acknowledge and give due attention to the absentee bidders that are bidding not just online but also on the telephones. It's a huge part of what we do. So it, it looks like a, a you know a telethon. You know we have a bank of phones with probably eight people, eight different people on telephones, and someone else monitoring the uh, the the bids online.
0: And that relationship with True has been longstanding. And at one point, Scott Tyree was hired by. Davis Hart. Yes. was it important to pair with a luxurious restaurant in the area? Was that part of the overall approach in, in an important way?
1: Well, it, I mean the the auction format has changed dramatically in the last twenty years. I mean, it used to be theater style seating and a you know traditional auction room, but it, it, that's the auction. The blind well, auctions are so long; they they they're a day long auction. So it, it's a much more civilized approach for people to be around a the table. They have a place for their laptop. They have a place for their their shoulder bags for their their copy of the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal, whatever that they, they they travel with, they have a place for that. Uh, we can serve them great wines during the course of the day, and we do. We open great bottles all day long, and True presents a you know really terrific buffet. So people sort of they camp out at their tables. Their friends come over and visit. They make new friends. So it be, it's become a much more social event, and which is terrific. People enjoying sitting around enjoying wines and. And um, sharing wines, I mean, it, it doesn't get much more civilized than that.
0: When you talked about the pacing, one of the things that strikes me about Hart Davis Hart is that it seems like the sell-through rate is high. In other words, you don't pass on a lot of lots. Everything that's offered usually gets sold. Is there a special technique that uh, has allowed you guys to have a higher sell-through rate than other auction houses? We
1: we take our estimates very seriously. We have a database that's probably can't be compared with anyone else's. And we have a team of people who take the whole process of, of, you know, establishing the value of a lot. I mean, some of them are are more of a commodity than others, but when there's rarity involved, our people really, they take a look at all the results achieved by every house. And we don't, we don't peg our estimates to some exorbitantly high isolated result. We try to, we we come to a very reasonable approach. So we don't try to fluff up the expectations of the consigners. We try to be very realistic and, in fact, our our success rate is much higher than anyone else in the, in the business because of that.
0: So what you're saying is sometimes uh, someone goes a little nuts, bids extraordinarily high on a lot of wine, maybe for sentimental reasons, maybe for emotional reasons, maybe just out of chance. And that can become a, a benchmark reference point for a future auction from another house because they say, well, someone paid $20,000 for right. that case. And, and Yes, and mind you, it takes time. two
1: people to bring the price up like that. But you know, it takes a common sense and, a, and an educated dart to come up with where we think the figures should be. We don't always get it right, but 99% of the time we do. But we don't we don't want to give anyone the an inflated picture of where their wines will be. But it's been a we have a tremendous success rate. So you'd
0: rather sell the lot through than. Pay it at too high of a price and scare off potential buyers who don't want to bid.
1: Exactly, exactly. And, you know, people are selling for a reason. You know, they sometimes it's, there's an urgent need for cash. Other times they're just taking advantage of the market. But it's our obligation to sell their wines. They don't so, necessarily want and to And we come certainly back. want to get the highest possible price. But you don't always get that by publishing a very aggressive estimate.
0: What do you get a high price from doing? I mean, what's a good way to build a higher price
1: for an item of wine? Well, we spend a lot of time communicating with our clients. We spend a tremendous amount of time emailing and phoning and, and meeting with clients around the world. They've, these people have become our friends. I mean, I've been doing this for decades. I won't say how many, but decades. And these people are personal friends. I can I say the same with Paul Hart and others, John Hart Ben Nelson. We, we have tremendous relationships. And um, we, enjoy, we, we enjoy working with them. We know what they're looking for. We let them know if something one of their favorite wines is coming up. It's all about building, nurturing the friendships. And it's more more that than thinking of it as a business. It's it's a relationship it's a relationship foundation. And that's these people are our friends.
0: And you have in recent years posted the highest domestic sales figures for America. Yes. And you think that's because you've really focused on this market while maybe others have looked more to Asia or
1: well, I think we 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 have a between you know Paul and I and John we we have so many relationships on this continent already, so that I think that gave us a, a leg up to begin with. But we we've also we have people in Asia to to monitor the market and develop it, nurture nurture those relationships. So it's a it's created a perfect storm, and a, one that that's been very gratifying for us. Sometimes
0: when people can sign to auction the auction house might say, well, these are the items we'll take, and these items are really not for auction. But you also have a retail component. Does that give you a leg up in terms of taking consignments that, you know, maybe some of it goes to
1: auction and some of it's sold at retail? Good question. You know, there's there are a lot of wines that might be of a very high quality, but if there's a single bottle or two bottles, it doesn't make sense to put them on the, on the auction market. We have found that people really focus on full case quantities or half case quantities, and we we try to... It, it enables bidders to make a quick decision. And that's a, that's a key to to, uh, to keeping the auction going. Because yeah, we keep a good pace, but we also make it easy to, for the bidders to do the arithmetic. So if, uh, if, we, if we try to offer things in full case quantities as, as often as we can. And the odd bottles, they make a great presentation on, on the retail site.
0: How has the retail shaken out in terms of a percentage of the business? What does it really look it's like? It's mushroomed.
1: It's mushroomed. It's a huge part of what we do. And um, when we receive new consignments, we, you know, blast the emails and contact people. And <laughs> the phones r- literally ring off the walls for, for hours. So, you know, people sort of, they wait in the wings, and they wait for us to, to post new wines. And we, we get a, an immediate reaction. It's, it's a fascinating thing to watch.
0: Do you think that the patronage of the retail outlet is as global as the auction side of what you do? Yes,
1: absolutely, absolutely.
0: So, you know, a buyer from Brazil might call up the Chicago store and say, hey, I want this.
1: Right, right. And we have a consolidation point in, in China. Um, so we can ship to, we make consolidated shipments to China and clients there can pick it up or, or arrange, you know, local, local cartage. But it's a, it's a very big part of what we do. And it's roughly the same client's bidding on you know bidding at auction that are also buying on the internet
0: so one of the things that's really unique about you is just the length of time in the business what have you seen as an auctionable item during that length of time you talked about michael Broadbent and bordeaux is it still mostly bordeaux or
1: bordeaux and burgundy still dominate the, what we do in fact we do themed auctions that are burgundy only or bordeaux only at times which are incredibly successful but you know it's. Uh, there are great wines being made in other, other parts of the world, and those are certainly in demand as well. But it's the, the real focus remains French. California wines play a, a huge part of what we do. Italian wines, German wines. But France still dominates the picture in terms of collectibles. And have we seen spirits at auction in Chicago? We have. Cognacs are popular, and lately we've been selling whiskeys. Uh, and some houses aren't allowed. It's a, you, it requires a certain license to sell them. So um, we are able to get that license here in Chicago. But it's, it's, it adds a little c- color and, and flavor to the, to the sales.
0: Do you see other emerging markets coming up that uh, haven't already been mentioned? Are, are there markets that aren't Brazil or China that are going to make a play in the future?
1: Well, I think, you know, Mexico has a lot of promise. Panama Russia, although it's a it's a complicated mess to get the wines into the country, but we we certainly have Russian collectors bidding in a rather clandestine way. But it's it's a global market, and uh, our market follows whatever the industrial market might end up being. Outside of it becoming more an international consumer, has it become a younger consumer? Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, it, it was in the beginning, it was. A room full of grandfathers. And now it's. Uh, there are times that we have to check people's ITs when they come in, which is great. It's a much more diversified crowd of bidders. Many more women are involved, which is gratifying. And um, no, it, it's, it's ever-changing, ever-changing. Several languages, languages are spoken in the cell room on any given Saturday. And we can usually find someone on the staff that can communicate directly. But it's, it's certainly a much younger crowd than it once was. Have the price escalations surprised
0: you over the course of your career?
1: Um, I'm no longer surprised by any trend in the market. But five years ago, when the when the prices spiked the way they did for Lafitte and and Burgundy, it was our heads were spinning. Every anybody in the business would have said that the it, it unbelievable prices were being obtained for the higher in Burgundies and in, in Bordeaux. No one, I think, ever could have imagined the prices of that sort. But now the the new economy and the new the new global market is uh, a bit more predictable. We can we can see the trends beginning and we can see where things are going, and we keep that in mind as we appraise any collection. How much is entertaining part of the auction business? It's a big part of it. Again, it's it's built on relationships. So there's a number of us that spend a lot of time on the road in different markets around the globe. Just. Taking clients to dinner, sometimes it's a group, sometimes it's one-on-one, but we keep involved and engaged in their lives. And, uh, and that's, that's really a strength for us. I, mean, I mentioned before that somebody that had sent me a list that I had dealt with 20 years ago completely fell off the map. He contacted me by phone yesterday, and he's ready to sell. So it's about friendships and, and developing a, a sense of trust. And, um, and the gentleman said, I, I'm not calling anybody else. You know, I dealt with you twenty years ago, and I'm. No one else is going to get this collection, and that was that's a that's music to my ears. That we've developed that level of trust and that kind of those sort of friendships among collectors.
0: So it's not so much a, a needle and a haystack to try to find consignments. It's more about developing relationships and letting the consignments come to you.
1: Yeah, no, you develop the relationships, you maintain the relationships, and and these people have become personal friends. It's not just a business relationship. I, I'm. Deeply involved in their in people's lives, and I can say that about a lot of my colleagues. Uh, we we spend times in their home, we know their children, we know their dogs and cats, and uh, we're we're very involved with their lives, and and that's a that's a wonderful feeling.
0: Does that work as fraud protection as well? I mean, there's a the part where someone might inspect the bottle, but then there's the part where, eh, you know, I don't really know that guy, and he seems kind of fishy to me. And
1: we take every measure necessary to ensure the authenticity of the wines. And um, luckily, we haven't had too many issues with that. We're very careful from the get-go.
0: Seems like relatively unscathed. That's why I ask.
1: Yeah, I, I'm hesitant to say any more than, <laughs> any more than that. But no, we, we take great care. We know the people that are selling. If we don't know, we ask a lot of questions. We dig deep into their sellers. And, and we're very, very careful about what we take in. Do we always get it right? No. At times, we, something might slip through the cracks. But we always make things right.
0: Have producers had more of an awareness about those kind of issues in terms yes. of working with you?
1: Well the producers I mean most of our the vast majority of our consignments come from private collectors. But uh producers are they're very engaged in the process and I know other there there's some very highly publicized occurrences of producers showing up in other sale rooms and being very vocal about questionable bottles
0: but i mean is it possible for someone at an auction house to call up someone and say hey what would your label have looked like back then we're just trying to figure it out or is that not possible no
1: most of them are very cooperative if we if we have questions we'll send a photograph of the bottle of the, of the label of the capsule uh, so most are cooperative in terms of you know ascertaining all things. we try to stay away from the older bottles um, we focus more on, on younger vintages we just don't want to. We don't want to create any issues. We don't want to take any chances. Uh, we owe that to ourselves. We owe that to our clients. So if it's if we if we're absolutely certain of the the authenticity, of course we'll sell a really old bottle. But that's uh, we don't do that very often at all.
0: So if it looks too good to be true, it may be.
1: Yes. Yeah. Yeah.
0: You know, you have brought to you major collections like the Steve Verlin sale. What was that like, and why do you think that that? Didn't end up in a New York auctioneer's hands based on where he lived.
1: Again, it was relationships. One of my colleagues was in New York and had dinner with. And we all knew Steve from from Sotheby's. Uh, he was a big collector there and was always active in the sale room. So we all knew him. And um, when he passed away, one of our colleagues had dinner with with his wife. Developed a strong friendship, and it was it was. She was very determined to come to us with a collection.
0: What was it like marketing that sale? Because it was a you know, pretty big deal. Seemingly. It was a very
1: big deal. It helped put us on the map. And uh, it brought a lot of people to the fold that we'd never dealt with before. People from all over the world.
0: And what other sales have been big for you?
1: Well, since that sale, every, we've had new bidders come in with, with every auction, frankly. So that was a, that was a watershed moment for us. Clearly, a watershed model. We've had other you know, tremendous sales. We had an auction earlier this year of a gentleman in Houston, a great seller, full of phenomenal burgundies. That, too, was a, a high watermark for us. So we're single owner sales such as that always attract a little more attention. They're a little more personal. There's a little more romance to the, to the seller. So it always attracts a little more attention.
0: We often hear about the hammer prices, and I feel like a lot of times auctions are judged by how high the hammer prices end up being and how many lots are sold. But I often wonder what the number of consigners and number of buyers really is. I mean, how many consigners and how many buyers does it really take to support a major auction house over 10 years? What's the actual number of buyers on the market? Boy. Is it in hundreds? Is it in thousands? It's in the...
1: the I mean, of regular buyers. Of regular buyers, it's in the hundreds. Um, in terms of consigners, the, cons- the the auction we have coming up this weekend has sixty consigners. Some are single case, some are multiple cases, hundred you know hundreds of cases. But it's um, it's it's hard to pinpoint you know a number like that. But certainly there are, there are thousands of active collectors. But the ones that are regularly active, that regular would be in the hundreds.
0: So even though it's a, it's a multi-million dollar market, it's really a hundred people or, I mean, hundreds of people, not, you know, millions of
1: people. It would, it would be safe to say thousands of people, but, I mean, not, not everyone participates with every auction. It's, it's, it's a rotating, you know, we, we deal with people who have very fast lives and sometimes they can focus on, focus on an auction, other times they can't. But on a regular basis, hundreds of collectors participate. And who goes to pick up the wine? We very seldom get a list that's 100% accurate. there're always you know miscalculations or as I like, oops I forgot I drank that case but um, we, we typically if it's a large collection we'll, we'll always send a team of people to the seller to oversee the packing process. If it's a collector we don't we've not dealt with before. We certainly want to be there to inspect the seller and we get on our hands and knees looking for you know, any bottles that are leaking or any sign of issues with the seller and oftentimes we'll reject wines We will reject entire sellers. Even if they're worth hundreds of thousands of dollars, if we don't, if we're not comfortable with the manner in which they've been stored, and we determine that by tasting the bottles, if we're not satisfied with how the wines were sourced, we just don't we don't knock on that door. So we don't we don't want to invite any issues or any chance of of selling wines that are out of condition.
0: Do you think it's important to be a wine lover as well as a wine seller if you're going to be a good wine seller?
1: Absolutely. I mean, it's I think we all drink great wines on the way, not every night, but I think having an appreciation of the wine helps helps us get excited about them. Helps us express that excitement if we if we have something in house that we've all tasted, and uh, we have a huge collection of German wines in house right now, and they're absolutely they're lovely, they're wonderful to drink in the summer. So by tasting them, by having a a tasting for the employees. It it makes it much easier for us to sell them to express just how exquisite the wines might be. When you
0: have employees that come to you, do you have certain characteristics that you say that guy's probably good for auctions or that young lady would be great for retail? I mean, what's the characteristics of one side of the house to the other?
1: You know, we all, it's a very integrated team. We don't, I don't think there's anyone that works exclusively with auctions or retail. It's very much a team effort so're everyone 's involved with every level of the business, and I think that 's the only way to do it. We all need to know, you know the strengths and weaknesses of every system, and that way we can would improve the process along the way.
0: How many auctioneers does it take to have an all day auction? I mean, how long can you go before you 're like ah i don 't think I can you know um, I need to sit down and have a glass of water there, there was
1: a, There was a time in my life that I would do almost an entire auction all day long with a brief break now and then the right amount of coffee and and adrenaline, <laughs> but we have now about five, I'd say five or six auctioneers. We rotate on a regular basis. It keeps people fresh. Just keep the, the people in the room fresh too. If you hear the same voice drone on and on for six or eight hours, it's gonna put people to sleep. So it, it keeps everyone alert. It keeps us fresh and, and we keep things accurate that way.
0: What advice do you give the younger
1: auctioneers? Well, it's, it's all about paying attention. You know, ha- Have eye contact express yourself, take a personal approach, call a client by name, you know, let them know that we know they're there. But it's about it's a matter of paying attention, keeping a rhythm. We, we don't have time. We, we're there for a compressed part of you know, schedule because dinner is going to be served at True and we know we have to clear out of the house at a certain time. So it's all about engaging with the people, developing eye contact, having a rhythm, keeping some levity in the process, and express some excitement. It's a great process, and it's, uh, the auctioneers always have the best seat in the house because they can see everyone's face and see every paddle in the air. So it's, it's an it's a invigorating position for us to take. And I, we always encourage people to express that, you know, let people know that you're excited to be up there.
0: Once you got going, was there a sense that this was going to be your
1: career for 30 years? When I first set my toes in the business, it was, I had no idea that it would be you know, such a long career. And in fact, looking back, had anyone told me what I, you know, forty years ago, what I'd be doing for a living, I would have just laughed. But it's been the process itself, aside from being around great people and drinking great wines and and learning about them, it's the process that's so exciting. Developing the relationships, being in cellars that, and, and knowing that the the collectors have been working building this collection for you know years and years and years, and. It's getting involved with the people, uh, uh, the collectors that are selling. You, you have this, such a deep involvement with them. Sometimes it's for a month. Sometimes it's for a week. Sometimes you you finish the process and you hope you never see that person again. But more so than not, you develop these great relationships that endure. I've been dealing with the same people, some of them for 30 years. And uh, you get very involved with their lives, with their children, with their dogs, their cats. And um, it's a... The, it's the process that, is, that keeps me going. It's the relationships that the have relationships, kept you in the game. The relationships. And the, you know, the things you learn from different people and, and visiting their homes and, and seeing their sellers, seeing how they, they experience wines and, and what a place the wine has in their own lives. I have great memories. You know, I deal with some of the people's sons and daughters who might still have a few bottles that their, their father had left. And that, that, it's always great to hear from them. But the relationships have been enduring, and, and they've really enriched my life. It's constantly invigorating.
0: Michael Davis, he's been excited to be up at the podium for several years now, and he continues to be at Hart Davis Heart in Chicago. Thank you very much. Thank you. Michael Davis of Hart Davis Heart. All Drink to That is hosted and produced by myself, Levy Dalton. Aaron Scala has contributed original pieces. Editorial assistance has been provided by Bill Kimsey. The show music was performed and composed by Rob Moose and Thomas Bartlett. Show artwork by Alicia Tenoyan. T-shirts, sweatshirts, coffee mugs, and so much more, including show stickers, notebooks, and even gift wrap are available for sale if you check the show website, alldrinktothatpod.com. That's I-L-L-drinktothatpod.com, which is the same place you'd go to sign up for our email list or to make one of the